If you've been with us most Sunday evenings recently, um, you'll know that we are working through the seven signs in the book of John's Gospel. And if you were here, you'll remember that right at the start of the series, Peter explained the purpose of signs. Um, signs point us in the, in the right direction, don't they? They tell us where we should go. They give us information on how to get there. Um, recently, Jack and I were taking a trip to Germany uh, to watch a football game, which I stayed asleep, sorry, stayed awake for most of. And uh, we had to go from Dublin Airport. And I can work out most of the way from Carrick to Dublin Airport, but for part of the journey, I really need to depend on the signs if I'm going to get there and if I'm going to get there on the right at the right time. And I have to follow the signs and do what they say rather than maybe pull off into Apple Green to buy sausage rolls on the way down to the airport. Um, signs are important, but doing what signs tell you to do and following signs is more important. In the Old Testament, we read of signs where God performs uh, something through usually a man, performs a sign through a man to demonstrate that God is with that person and to demonstrate that God is the real God. So we read that God enabled Moses to send plagues and do signs in front of Pharaoh in order to get the Pharaoh to do what it was that he wanted him to do, to let his people go. Um, in, in the book of 1 Kings, um, the people are double-minded. They are worshipping Baal and they are worshipping the Lord God Almighty. And Elijah, the prophet, prays, and God sends a sign. The fire comes down from heaven to demonstrate that the Lord is God. And it says, when the people saw the sign that worked through Elijah, the people fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. So the signs showed that God was who he said he was, that there was no one like him, that there was no one beside him. And in the book of John, which we're working our way through, we are told by the writer himself why he has put signs in the gospel. He says, Jesus did many other signs, but these are written, these signs are written that in order that disciples at the start of the Christian era and even today would know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, we might have life in his name. So we're not left wondering, why did John put signs in the gospel? They're here so that um, the first Christians and so that Christians today would have the evidence to believe that Jesus is the Christ and that we would have life in his name, that we would know that Jesus is the real thing. So we're, we're in John chapter 6 this evening. So if you turn to John chapter 6, and if you keep it open as well, the context of our reading is that Jesus' followers have just uh, watched him miraculously feed 5,000 people. It's the fourth sign. And the people in response 
think that Jesus is something special. Peter talked about that a couple of weeks ago. The people think they realize that Jesus is something special and they want to make him king. And Jesus perceiving this, it says, gets himself offside and his disciples offside. So we're going to read from verse 12 for the sake of context. And we're going to read through to verse 21. This is what it says. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and, they, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it's I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. And we'll end our reading there. So this is a story, folks, that most of us will remember from childhood. We remember it from Sunday school. Um, it's a story that's in John's gospel, and it's a story that's in Mark's gospel and Matthew's gospel as well. So what's happening? This is this is near the end of the day where Jesus has miraculously fed 5,000 people. And he's had to get himself and his disciples offside. Jesus has gone up into the hills to pray, if you read between Matthew and Mark. And the disciples have gone down to the shore. It's been a tough day. Um, and they are going to sail from Bethsaida to Capernaum, which is a number of miles away, maybe six or seven miles. The disciples are in the boat by themselves. They get into a boat. Some of them are experienced seamen. You know some of them were fishermen before uh, they were called by Jesus. If you look at verse 16, it tells us that it was the evening and uh, by the time they're in the boat, if you look at verse 17, it says it is dark. It's dark. It's like a power cut. There was no electricity then. There are no starboard lights. There's no lighthouses. It is pitch black. Maybe some stars. Up until the point where it tells us that the weather turns and a storm arrives. And we can begin to try to understand what a storm must be like in a wee small boat in the middle of a lake. It's, it's uh, choppy seas, the wind is howling, the waves are splashing, the boat's being knocked around. And if you look at verse 19, we can figure out that these guys are tired because they have been rowing for three or four miles. Now, the reason I know they're tired from rowing three or four miles is that I have a rowing machine. And 
60 seconds on the rowing machine would kill me, never mind three or four. I know, I know it's difficult for you to believe looking at me. But they're tired. Um, and they're maybe asking, where on earth is Jesus? Jesus isn't with them. And then it says, if you look down to verse 19, they see a figure in the water, walking on the water, and it says they're terrified. Now, the term for walking on the water here isn't the way you or I would walk through a storm, hunkered down, head down, plodding on. The term for walking here is quite a relaxed walk. Jesus is walking along the water effortlessly. And understandably, the disciples are in fear, and it tells them, he says, it's me, don't be afraid. And then we read at the end of this short little story that Jesus gets into the boat. Matthew's gospel tells us that the wind stops immediately, and we read here that they are immediately at their destination. It doesn't say that it was a miracle that the boat was moved to the end of the journey. It could mean that. Or it could mean that Jesus has been walking so far that it was near the end of the journey. But whatever way you take it, it's a record of a pretty amazing event that is happening. So what on earth is this story about? What is this sign pointing Jesus' disciples to? What is this sign pointing us to this evening? Is it about us having faith this evening to go and walk that way across Belfast Lock to Bangor if you would want to go to Bangor I don't think it is so I want to give you two practical applications before we think about the purpose of John including this story in the Bible Jesus sends Jesus sends his followers, his disciples, onto the boat. John doesn't record it here, but if you read Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel, it says that Jesus makes his disciples get onto the boat or constrains them to get onto the boat. And it says that the disciples obey. So everything that we're reading in this story is as the result of the disciples' obedience to Jesus. Life often presents us with difficult choices or choices every day there's choices should I do this or should I do that and sometimes we don't know what we should do and sometimes we're paralyzed by indecision like a Robert Frost in his poem the the road less the road not taken sorry and we don't know what to do and we're paralyzed and we take ages before we make a decision And sometimes we put off making a decision to do something for God simply because we are being disobedient. But the disciples here don't act this way. They do what Jesus tells them to do. And they know from previous experience that they've been with Jesus long enough and they know that sometimes when they do what Jesus tells them to do, things go great. Things go really smoothly. And they know as well that sometimes when they do what Jesus tells them to do, things go very far from smoothly. 
but they know they are not the master of their own fate. They're not the captain of their soul. Jesus is their Lord, and they do what he tells them to do. It's as simple as that. Jesus' followers follow Jesus. And if we are followers of Jesus, we are to follow what he says. And there are lots of things Jesus tells us to do if we're followers of Jesus. So um, I was thinking, what, what is it that Jesus is telling his disciples to do? He's told his disciples to get into the boat, but Jesus tells his disciples today things that we should do. And Dave Ramsey was talking about a number of these things this morning when he was in Ephesians 4. I just want to very briefly give you four ideas for things we are to do. One in our personal lives when no one else is watching. One among our family and in our neighborhood. One when we're at work and one for here in church. When no one else is watching, we are to abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Pretty tough challenge for us to hold fast to what is good all of the time, isn't it? In our neighborhood, we are to not be ashamed of the testimony of Jesus. How often do we chicken out and not tell people about Christ. And the same in our workplace. We are to not be ashamed of the testimony of Christ. In our workplace, Jesus' followers are told to bless those who persecute us, to not curse them, to not overcome evil with good, but to, or to not overcome evil by evil, but to overcome evil with good. So how are you doing? with that and here in church Dave was talking about this this morning from Ephesians 4 but this is a similar message here in in Romans 12 we are to love one another with brotherly affection we are to outdo each other in in showing honor we are to be fervent in spirit and we are to serve the Lord would anyone be able to know that you follow Jesus by the way you act, or by the things you say, or by the things you do, or by how you spend your money? Would people look at you the way the first people, when Jesus was around, looked at Jesus' followers, and it was quite clear to them who Jesus' followers were? Could they look at you and say the same? If you're a follower of Jesus, then you have to follow his example and follow his words. And Jesus' first followers followed his example. The second brief point I want to make this evening is this. Jesus' followers keep on doing what Jesus says to them to do, no matter what the consequences, which is tough. So the disciples here are in the, in the dark, rough sea, and it's grueling because they have done what Jesus has told them to do. And let's be honest. What they could have done was turn the boat around towards shore and sailed into the shore and taken shelter. 
But they didn't do that. Because Jesus had told them to do something, to go somewhere. And that's what they had set their hearts to do. As we read the Gospels, we see that sometimes Jesus' followers do the right thing and sometimes they do the wrong thing. And it's the same in this church today and it's the same for you and I today. Sometimes we get it right and sometimes we get it wrong. We see Peter denying Christ. In the book of Acts, then we read that Peter and John are before the Jewish council. They've been telling people about Jesus and they get into trouble and they're arrested. And the Jewish council tell them effectively to shut up talking about Jesus. And they say, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. But we cannot but speak of what we've heard. And the first Christians end up in choppy waters because of their obedience to Jesus. He's told them to go make disciples and Stephen gets stoned to death. Even though they did the right thing, they ended up in choppy water. And last Sunday, there were Christians in Burkina Faso who were being obedient to Christ's command to continue to meet together. And two dozen of them were murdered. It's not going to necessarily happen to us. But very often when Christians do the right thing, we have to be honest. Following Jesus sounds great. But sometimes it ends you in hot water. And it's ended the disciples here in rough water. Sometimes obeying Jesus will be plain sailing. And at other times when we do what Jesus says and when we hold fast, we'll be in tribulation and we'll be bashed about and it'll be dark and it'll be grim and we'll be looking around wondering where Jesus is. And that's what's happening to the disciples here. Jesus sends us out to live our lives for him, to make a difference. And sometimes it'll be lovely. It'll be like a picnic, like the feeding of the 5,000, and everyone will be happy. And other times, it'll be like being in the boat in the storm. Sometimes Jesus sends us into the storm intentionally or he allows us to go into the storm. And our job as Christians is to keep on rowing, to keep on being obedient to Jesus, to keep going no matter how tough it gets. And I re I'm not saying this glibly. I realize that'll be really tough when it, when it comes to it. But that's what the first disciples did. And that's what Jesus calls us to do. Whether things look good or things look bad, we have to keep on being obedient. We don't give up following simply because there's a storm. Now, without obedience, without their perseverance, the disciples would not have experienced what it was that Jesus wanted to show them. Without obedience and without perseverance, the disciples in the boat here wouldn't have experienced what it was that Jesus wanted to show them. This isn't a story about 
obedience or about perseverance. That isn't John's purpose in including this story in his gospel. This is a sign story. By the time we get to John chapter 6, Jesus' disciples have spent an awful lot of time with Jesus. They've heard a lot of his teaching, and they've seen a number of his miracles. Uh, They've seen healings. They've seen exorcisms. They have even seen him calming the storm. The disciples know at this point, when we're reading John 6, they know at this point that Jesus is a man of great power. They've seen it with their own eyes. It's undeniable. And it's undeniable as well for the crowds who have been watching Jesus. And they know he's some sort of miracle man. I say that reverently, but, you know, they're looking at him and they're going, this this man has power. He can work miracles. There is something special about him. And that's why they're following him around. They didn't follow him up the hillside for empty teaching. They followed him for teaching and because they knew he was the real thing. And on the hillside that the story of the feeding of the 5,000, which comes just before this, they see that power once again demonstrated in a mighty way. They know they've no food, and they know that they were fed miraculously with the wee boy's packed lunch of five barley loaves and two fish. And what, what is it they want to do with Jesus? They want to make him king. They think he's something special. They want to make him king. But the, but the, but the crowd has misread the signs about Jesus. This is really important. They have misread the signs about Jesus. And this is really important. Jesus will not be a mere earthly king. He doesn't want people to think of him as a mere earthly king. Jesus' power isn't going to last for 30 years in a small part of the Middle East and then be finished. And Jesus doesn't want his disciples to think that he is going to be a mere earthly king. He's not a small-time ruler. Jesus' disciples are Jews, you know that. And they have grown up with stories of God Almighty. They have grown up with the, the same stories that we've grown up with, of God Almighty parting the Red Sea, of God Almighty splitting the River Jordan, of God Almighty sending Uh, the tempest on Jonah's sea. Jesus' disciples here in the boat, in the fear, fed up and tired, are intimately familiar with the Psalms. They've used the Psalms in worship. They've used them in the high points and low points. And two of the Psalms that they are familiar with are Psalm 89 and Psalm 107. If you want to turn one of them up, Psalm 89 or Psalm 107, I'll put 
a couple of verses up from Psalm 89. It says, O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you? You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. So the disciples know that it is the Lord of hosts who rules the sea. And if you look at Psalm 107, it says they cried to the Lord in their trouble. They cried to Yahweh in their trouble and he delivered them. He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them give thanks, thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. These two Psalms that the disciples knew make it clear to the disciples and to us now that only God Almighty has power and authority over the wind and the waves. And Jesus is showing them in this passage that he isn't a mere earthly king. He's not just an ordinary man. Jesus is showing them that he is almighty. And our signs so far point to that fact. He's turned the water into wine. He's fed the 5,000. In other words, he has power over food and drink. He's healed the, the man at the pool at Bethesda, and he's healed the disabled boy, or the boy, the boy who was ill with his word. He has power over sickness and health. He has power over the supernatural, over angels and demons. And this evening in our passage, we see that Jesus has the power to set aside the laws of the universe that applies to the rest of us, gravity. He has the power to set it aside and to walk on water. And the disciples are under no illusion who it is that stands before them. Because Christ is amazing. They know that. Christ is able. They know that. And now they know that Christ is almighty. Jesus walking on the water shows what type of king he is. He is the Lord. And each of us will face storms in our relationships. We face storms. At home we can face storms in work in our health, physical and mental and spiritual storms may buffet our very souls. But our passage this evening shows us that for Christ, all things are possible. It shows us that he is able, that he is amazing and that he is almighty, that he is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. And so this evening, we rejoice with the first disciples that this able and amazing 
Christ is the Almighty One and that he is the captain of our souls.